Don't forget to rate us on iTunes so we can continue to bring great content to you. Good evening, everyone, and thank you for joining us tonight. My name is Robin Maggio, and I'd like to welcome you to our webcast, Teaching Grit, Perseverance, and Frustration Tolerance to Students with ADHD with our guest presenter, Cindy Goldridge. Today's webcast is part of our Ask the Experts Education Edition series, which is part of Chad's National Resource Center on ADHD. The NRC is funded by the U.S. Centers for Disease Control and Prevention and provides reliable, science-based information about current medical research and ADHD management. It is a pleasure to introduce today's guest expert, Cindy Goldrich. Cindy is a board-certified ADHD coach, teacher trainer, and parenting specialist. She specializes in providing education, coaching, and support for educators, parents, and mental health professionals to help children with ADHD and executive function deficits succeed at home, in school, and in life. She received her master's in education and counseling psychology from Columbia University and is the creator of the nationally offered Common Connected Workshop Series for Parents of Children with ADHD and the author of Eight Keys to Parenting Children with ADHD. Again, we're pleased to welcome our guest expert, Cindy Goldrich. Um, it's always a pleasure when I get to speak to teachers, and I'm going to start. I know that Robin gave you a bit of an introduction about myself. I do just want to add one thing. I know many of you out there are not familiar with the world of ADHD coaching. So I figured I would explain a little bit about that. Um, I know when I teach across the country, a lot of times teachers and, and parents are not really sure what that is. Just like there are coaches for athletics and there are coaches, um, there are executive coaches and life coaches. In the world of ADHD, we really found that the coaching model can be very helpful. Coaching is not therapy. Coaching is really where the coach holds the other person's agenda, so to speak. We help you reach your, your goals, help raise awareness about where you may be stuck on some of those goals. Anyone that's ever tried to start an exercise program or lose weight or you know set any kind of goal knows that it's nice to have an accountability partner and someone that helps them see maybe some of the things they're not seeing themselves. So that's what coaching is. Um, let's see, I think I'm gonna go on from there and start our presentation. We are going to be talking about grit and perseverance, and I do thank you all for being here because the more you teachers know, the more it really supports the kids, of course, and the more it supports the parents as well. So I just like to give a shout out for the parents. All right, so do any of you looking at this kid say, oh, I know that kid. That's the kid I'm teaching. Well, he won't try anything new that he can't do right away. I tell them all the time, you're so smart, you got this, but that doesn't work. And it's really hard for these kids, but it's also really frustrating for the educator because maybe the day before he was able to do it just fine, but he's sitting there and he's getting frustrated and he's giving up and he's causing all sorts of stress and strain. So what we've realized is that before learning can happen, you have to actually believe you have the ability to learn. So I'm not showing you a film clip that I very often show when I do this presentation, but I want you to use your imagination for a moment 
and imagine you are watching someone going up an escalator and all of a sudden that escalator malfunctions and it stops and the person stands there and he stands there and he keeps standing there and you're wondering to yourself why isn't he moving why doesn't he just walk up the rest of the way or maybe walk back down as if it's a staircase but yet he's standing there you may be teaching some people that act just like that like the kid that breaks his pencil and goes up to you and says teacher my pencil broke and you're wondering why aren't they doing anything but this is sort of that that situation of either learned helplessness or they just can't problem solve and that's what happens to some kids because as I said, before they can do anything, they must believe they have the ability to succeed. So we're gonna talk about some challenges, challenges to learning. First of all, some kids lack motivation. And I could talk about three hours on lacking motivation. Um, it seems like kids lack motivation. Very often it's a disguise for lack of confidence, other, problems that, that they're facing, but let's just start with that, that sometimes they just don't seem to want to do what they need to do. Sometimes kids avoid challenges, and sometimes kids break down when the work gets hard. And by the way, who else breaks down when the work gets hard? Many adults, many of us. So how are we going to help kids want to learn? How are we going to build that confidence back up. Well, we have to first start with where they are. And the question is, how do they view themselves? What is the voice inside their head saying? It seems like they're saying they can't, but it's probably saying a lot more and we need to help them get in touch with that. Are they worried about failure? Are they worried about being judged or being left out or cut out? Are they focused on just looking smart and competent so that maybe they're not really working at their level, but they're working maybe a few levels ahead of where they're ready to be at that moment? And what are the messages that they're getting from those around them, from all the teachers, their peers, their family members? Whenever I work with parents, I always say I believe that parents parents out of love and logic, and I believe teachers do the same but we don't always have the specific tools and skills we need to address some of these challenging behaviors. So a student's response to a challenge actually arises, as I'm saying, to their belief about their intelligence, their belief about their intelligence. And this comes from the work of Carol Dweck, and some of you may be familiar with her work, but I'm gonna go through it a little bit. What Carol Dweck and her team of researchers did was they took a grade, a seventh grade class of typical learners, and they pulled the kids out of the classroom one at a time and brought them to a separate room and gave them a puzzle to do. And this puzzle was something that they could, you know, pretty much succeed in doing. It was pretty much in their wheelhouse. And based on doing that puzzle, the proctor gave them, said one of two statements to them. And then afterwards, they wanted to see, did what we say to them impact their ability to succeed in the following tasks, in the future tasks that they were given? Did it impact their behavior at all? And here are the two things that were said. Half of the class said, 
you must be smart at this after the child had done the puzzle. And then they wanted to observe what happened. To the other half, they said, you must have really worked hard. So in this first case, when we say you must be smart at this, what are we praising? Well, we're praising them for their intelligence. You're smart. And as a result, you would think that the kids will do great. You'd think that their feathers would go up and they'd feel really good about themselves so they can do more, right? Well, what happened was the other half, when we praised them for their effort, we found a very different result. So when we praised the kids for their intelligence, the kids, as a result, looked focused on looking smart. But as the puzzles became more difficult, they showed lower levels of confidence, motivation, and performance. And this is not what we would expect necessarily. But why would their level of confidence, motivation, and performance go down? Well, let's think a minute. What behavior did these kids demonstrate or actually not demonstrate? Well, as the puzzles became more difficult, if they weren't able to do it, they started losing confidence in themselves. And more than that, they stopped trying because they started to believe, I'm not smart enough to do these. So they weren't putting forth that effort that was necessary. That effort was so important. They also were more likely to lie about how they did. I'm not saying that they all lied, but what happened was, remember, these kids were taken out of the classroom one at a time. When they went back into the classroom, let's say Johnny was the one that was out of the classroom. When he walked back in, his friend Matt said to him, hey, Johnny, how'd you do on those puzzles? Well, Johnny said, oh, I did great. No problem. They were easy because Johnny wanted to look like he was smart. And they also became more risk averse. Why? Well, because if they felt like they couldn't succeed at one puzzle, why would they want to take on those more challenging puzzles? They weren't going to do it. But these other kids that were focused on their effort, I mean, that were, that were told you must have really worked hard, they focused on learning the task. They felt good when they were trying. So their levels of confidence and motivation and their actual performance went up. Why? Because they knew they were getting praise for effort, so all they worried about was trying. They weren't as focused on whether they succeeded at the task or not. They weren't worried about if they were smart. They were worried about if they were trying. And as a result, when they were given an option, hey, do you want to try a puzzle just like this? Or do you want to try these new and more challenging ones? They said, sure, we'll try the challenging ones. Excuse me, I'm just having a sip of water. So this brings us to the importance of mindset. What Carol Dweck and her researchers focused on is that there were two kinds of mindsets. There's a fixed mindset, and then there's a growth mindset. And with the fixed mindset, those, those first group of kids that we talked about where we praised them, you know, where we were praising them for their intelligence, people believe that their intelligence and their expertise are fixed and unchangeable traits and or abilities, and that some people are smart and some people aren't. In fact, you might not necessarily have a fixed mindset in all areas, but you might say to yourself, you know, the biggest way that I can always tell is when that box comes from the store of something you have to build, right? Maybe you've got just got a desk or a cabinet or, 
even a, even a chair that you have to build it, people have one or two reactions. Either they say, wow, this is so cool. Can't wait to rip the box open and, and start building. And I'm sure some of you out there in the audience are saying, nope, not me. I'm the one that just passes off the, the whole box to someone else and says, I can't build. Well, when you're telling yourself, I can't build, that's because somewhere back there, you have a fixed mindset around building. At some point in your life, you realize, I'm not good at this. And so you stopped trying. One of the things I have found interesting in the last years is I noticed I used to tell myself, I'm not good at art, right? I can't do any graphic work. I'm not a good artist. And I realized that this kind of fixed mindset happens to a lot of people. Some of you out there, I'm sure, feel like I'm not artistic. Well, what happens is when you're very, very young and you do that cute little drawing and you pass it to the kindergarten teacher or maybe your parent and they say, oh, tell me about the picture. And you say, oh, it's a tree. And the person looks at the scribble and they say, oh, that's beautiful. That's wonderful. And then as you get a little older and now you're taking art class and you're in third grade and you, you show the, the teacher or you show your parent what you've drawn and you say, this is a tree. And they say, well, you know what? If it's a tree, maybe you want to try this. Or maybe you can color it in a, you know, in a green or put some leaves or darken the branches a little bit. So you start to think, well, maybe I'm not that good an artist. And you develop this fixed mindset. You view effort as fruitless or worse because either you get it or you don't. Either I know how to draw or I don't. And you avoid a challenge. You give up easily and you use negative self-talk. You know, I'm not good at this. You view criticism and the success of others as threatening or judgmental. Oh, you got a 90 on that test and I got a 70. You must think you're so smart. But when you have a growth mindset, you believe that your intelligence and your expertise can be developed through your effort and through instruction. And I'll also say through support. You demonstrate a desire to learn. You recognize that your brain and your talent, those are just the starting points. Your effort is the road to mastery. That's how you're going to get better. You embrace a challenge, you persevere, and the language you tell yourself is so motivating. It's, you know, I've done stuff like this before. I know this is charged, but I, hard, but I can figure this out. And you view criticism and the lessons of others as inspiration. You got a 90, I only got a 70. What strategies did you use? How did you study? So the big question of today is, of course, how are we going to impact mindset? Well, a few things. First of all, we're going to teach students how learning happens, but literally teach them how, how learning is going to happen in the brain. We're going to help them become aware of their self-talk. What's that language they're telling themselves, the story that they're telling themselves? You're going to ensure that the kids know how they can improve, that they see somehow a pathway to movement. And you're going to give them positive role models of people who do have a growth mindset. You're going to focus on learning more than performance. And we'll talk about that in a little bit. So we're going to be creating a growth mindset culture in school. And I would encourage you, by the way, that everything I'm teaching here is a great lesson to do with the parents on a parent night and help the kids believe that they can learn. By the way, some role models that I'm going to recommend people like Michael Jordan. If you look at Michael Jordan, he's someone that um, 
legend has it that he didn't even make it onto his high school basketball team. He went home and cried, but he didn't give up. He kept trying. He kept trying over and over. You'll see some famous quotes by him, and, and he's actually written some books around effort. And then you could look at something like Dancing with the Stars. I'm always amazed how the first week they're taking people that have never done any kind of ballroom dancing, and by the end, these are magnificent dancers. So these people obviously have a growth mindset. So let's take a look at how we're going to do this. So teaching about the brain. Here's a very simple picture about the brain. And if you see on the left where, where it's a little purple and it says the prefrontal cortex, the prefrontal cortex, that's the thinking part of the brain. That's where you process and reflect on information. This is where your executive functions are. I'm going to talk about those executive functions in just a few minutes. And then we have what I'm going to call the middle part of the brain. And I know it's not exactly in the middle, but again, I want to teach the kids this, that in the middle of your brain, that's where you want to get all that information. You've got something called the hippocampus, and that's going to link new sensory input to form and store and process memories. So when you're learning, that's where you want to get all that information. And then in the back of the brain, that's where you've got something called the amygdala, and that's where you experience emotions. Right, we'll talk about that a little later on as well. So here are the executive function skills. I'm not going to do a whole workshop on executive functions right now, but I do want to explain a few essentials. One of them is that if you notice, um, if you look at, let's say, the fourth one where it says effort, regulating alertness, sustaining effort, and processing speed, processing speed, that's, um, that's your ability to process information with reasonable accuracy. That's the amount of time it takes you to process information with reasonable accuracy. And your processing speed can actually be subject to anxiety, stress, and pressure. We all know that. If, we, if we're under a lot of pressure, it takes us a lot longer to actually think about something. We have to actually slow our brains down. But kids with ADHD can be up to 30% delayed in all of these executive functions that you're looking at. So if you're wondering why you've got a very bright kid in fifth grade who somehow can't organize and plan and, and get himself started, it could be because he's delayed in these skills. These are all skills. So the reason I wanted to mention effort, processing speed, is very early on, kids start to think about themselves in terms of are they smart or not? So let's say you're all in kindergarten. We're going to turn this into a kindergarten class. And I point to the board, and let's say I was pointing to this chart here, and I was pointing to that big red box at the top. When kids are very young, if you ask them, how do you know who the smart kids are in the class, what behavior does a smart kid do? They raise their hand really fast, and they volunteer the answer. I know, I know, it's a, and it's a rectangle. They're going to look at that, and they're going to say, that's a rectangle. But the slower processor, they may look at that, and they may say, what shape is that? And they may kind of process it slowly to themselves, and they might even, especially if they have ADHD, get a little distracted by the fact that, wow, it's got some words in there. It's saying something about a board of directors. I don't know what a board of directors is, but they're not the ones that are quickly raising their hand. Okay? So they, from the very early ages, start to maybe think about themselves as, well, I'm not as smart as those other kids. I'm not raising my hand as smart, as fast. 
So that's where we have to really think about what is the story these kids are telling themselves about their own mindset. Now, getting back to teaching about the brain, oh, by the way, and I would say that with this, I would suggest that you teach all kids about executive functions. And I can, I'm happy to send you guys a slide of this, especially if you want to email me. My email address is cindy at ptscoaching. Um, actually, if you email info at ptscoaching.com, that's better. So info at ptscoaching, I'm happy to send you a full slide of this. But we're also going to look at neuroplasticity. What is that? Well, your brains change physically when you learn new things and you have new experiences. Every time you learn something new, your brain is going to form new connections. So here's just a little image of two, of two neurons. There's A and B. And the dendrites bring the information to the cell body. And then the axons take the information away from the cell body. And information is going to flow to another across a synapse via chemical called, chemicals called neurotransmitters. And I literally would teach the kids about this. You can do a great easy craft with the kids. I don't care if they're in kindergarten or in high school, where you have them each make a cell out of uh, pipe cleaners and then get a, bun a whole bunch of string and have two kids stand across from each other and then give them some kind of fact that they have to memorize and have the first kid say the fact and throw a piece of string to the other kid and that kid's going to tie it to their little um, neuron that they've made out of the pipe cleaners and then that other kid is going to say that fact again and they're going to throw a string to that first person and tie it onto their cell and go back and forth with a new piece of string over and over and what they're going to see is each time they repeat that fact that string collection is going to get stronger so the more you practice the stronger your neuron connections become. So the neurons that fire together, wire together. Now, when I do this in my full teacher trainings, I always have my whole class repeat it, so I'm going to ask you in your own homes to just repeat that. The neurons that fire together, wire together. Now, when you did that, did you see that another connection, another string was forming in your brain? Literally, another connection was being formed? So the weaker connections are pruned away, just like we do with plants or trees. So use it or lose it. And that's why it's so important to be a lifelong learner. So Carol Dweck's research on seventh grade students clearly showed that those who ex had explicit training in a growth mindset and education about the brain showed significantly greater improvement academically when compared to students who had just learned study skills for the subject material. What she did was she broke the class up, a seventh grade class, of typical learners, she broke them up in half, and half the kids were given math study skills, the other half were given study skills, plus they were given a basic education about the brain, not so much different than what I've done with you here tonight. And here's what she found. Many of the students reported using the image of their neurons making new connections to, to motivate themselves in school, saying that they pictured the neurons forming new connections when they paid attention in class, and when they were tempted to not study, they rejected that idea on the grounds that new connections would not be formed. So we just gave kids a reason to study. Literally, we gave them a reason to study. We showed them their brain. Your brain, it's your most important muscle. 
the more you use it, the stronger your neuron connections become. And I would suggest that in your classrooms, you hang up a picture just like this. And you remind them, are you seeing it happening when you say this over? When I ask you to repeat this, are you seeing that connection happening in your brain? So let's talk about the grades for a moment. Excuse me, I'm going to take a sip. I know that we all have to give grades. Whether it's kindergarten or 12th grade, we have to give grades. But the thing is that when we emphasize natural intelligence, which is very much what grades are, are, are emphasizing in some ways, I should say, I'll clarify that, but it takes it out of the child's control and it provides no good recipe for responding to failure. When we emphasize their effort, then it gives kids a variable that they can control. They come to see themselves as in control of their success. But when you think about all those executive function skills, if their executive function skills are all not all firing, let's say, at the same time, if maybe they are having a hard time initiating, or they're having a hard time planning and organizing, or they're having a, you know, their processing speed is slower, or anything like that, they may have a harder time succeeding. In fact, researchers found that 25% of how well you do on a given exam or an IQ test or any kind of measurement has more to do with your executive functioning than with your actual content knowledge. So we can start being more creative about how we grade. I know we can't take away those grades, but we can maybe add a few grades. Start grading them on how they're using their executive function skills, their effort to organize and to plan, the number of different solutions or attempts that they're trying. Are they following a plan? Uh, can you allow for alternate ways for them to show mastery of the material? Maybe an oral exam or a pictorial or a role playing. Or maybe demonstrating how that information is going to apply to them in their lives. But we have to look at one other thing that I believe impacts their behavior and impacts their ability to have grit and perseverance, and that is stress. In fact, I believe that stress is the gatekeeper to learning. Here's our brain again, and you see on the right side, we've got that chief executive officer, right? That's the, the prefrontal cortex. When negative emotions come in, that increases the hormone cortisol, and that actually dulls cognition. What happens is the prefrontal cortex turns off, so those, those executive functions, right, are basically shutting off, and the rapid reflexive responses of the amygdala turn on. That back part of the brain flares up. The brain goes into survival mode. And I'm sure you see this all the time in your classrooms. What does the brain look like in survival mode? You're all saying it to yourselves, I'm sure. Fight, flight, and freeze. Fight, fright, and freeze. What happens is no learning can take place. No problems can be solved and empathy for others becomes difficult. In my work with parents, the workshop series that I offer is called Calm and Connected because what parents learn really in the very first session is what the importance is of calm. And then of course we have to help them develop that calm for themselves and more importantly, well actually equally importantly, we have to help the kids develop the calm. Because if there's no calm, it doesn't matter what carrots you dangle in front of them, what rewards you dangle in front of them, they're too shut down or checked out. They can't do it. 
So the goal here is we want to help kids face frustration, but with a lot of support. By helping students safely experience a struggle and frustration, we can help them become aware of their self-talk and challenge it if necessary. So I'm going to suggest that you provide them with a variety of structured activities and let them know that your intention is literally that you want them to fail, that you're going to support them in failing, that you want to help them figure out what do they do when they can't do something? What's the story they're telling themselves? What strategies can they use? What are they going to help themselves to do so that they don't give up? Okay? So we're really asking them, we're setting them up very gently for failure. And I've got lots of activities. In fact, again, if you email me at info at ptscoaching.com, I'm happy to send you a few of the activities where you can do things like puzzles or word games. And you can have a whole fun day around it. And you tell them, today we are going to test our limits, our determination, and our patience. Let's see the messages our brains are sending us and how we can help ourselves succeed. Because perseverance is actually a very valuable asset that helps us achieve what we want in life. I'm a strong believer that we've got to take some time and bring back social, emotional learning into the classroom. I know a lot of you are sitting there saying, but I don't have time for that. I've got to get the content. I've got supervisors walking by, the principals walking by. I can't take time out to do some of these things. But the thing is, these exercises don't have to take a long time, and I promise you, it's going to increase their on-task behavior. It's going to increase their ability to stay with the challenge so that they are developing the tenacity, the determination, that stick-to-itiveness, the stamina, the staying power, their endurance, and their grit. That's the only way we're going to get this through is if we truly are trying to challenge them in a way that's safe. Because as soon as we start adding in that grade, then the anxiety kicks in. And remember what I said, stress is the gatekeeper to learning. We want to give them that chance without the stress. We want them to see what happens to your brain when you learn. And show them that the brain changes. That the practice and the effort are going to grow those muscles in the brain. The more connections, the bigger connections, the stronger connections make the stronger brains and the stronger minds. So see yourself as a learner. This is not my best graphic. That's not meant to be a cloud. That's actually supposed to be your brain. And inside your brain, you already have a certain amount of neurons. The question is, what do you want to get better at? So you can talk to the kids about, you know, what's something that was really hard for you when you were younger. Maybe it was learning how to ride a two-wheeler or learning how to tie your shoelace or, you know, learning your math facts. What do, you, what do you want to get better at now, right? What's your challenge now so that you actually can be increasing the number of neurons that are in your brain? So you want to be filling up that whole space. What are three things you can do to make more neurons fire so that it starts to look like that? So failure, well, that's just data. That's not just data for the teacher, though even though it seems like that to the kids. And yes, this is great. It's a first attempt in learning. It lets you know where you need to learn more. It tells you where you need to strengthen your neuron connections. See, the problem is, unfortunately, sometimes we have to go so fast with the curriculum, we teach them something, 
we give them a test that gave them feedback about, well, I did good, I did bad, and then we go on to the next learning. But if we could slow this down a little bit and say, okay, you got a 70 this time, let's go back. Let's try to learn more about this, and then I'm going to give you that same test in two days, and let's see what we can do to help you increase that, okay? So it's not just go home and make the corrections, that's very valuable, but let's actually put you in that testing situation again and see if you've improved. And if you haven't improved, let's break this down. Let's figure out why you haven't improved. Is it that you still don't understand the material? Or maybe your strategies for approaching the test are what's getting in the way. Or maybe it's that you get very nervous when you take a test so we can start to give you some strategies around not being as nervous. We want to help them figure out what they can do to succeed. Even in failure, we must feel that we have an opportunity to succeed if we're going to maintain our resiliency and our grit. So another thing you can do is you can hang this up in the classroom. And again, I know for young kids, this may seem really cool and the older kids may feel like, oh, you know, I'm above that. But all you need to do is point to it and ask them to ask themselves, you know what, how would you rate yourself on this effort thermometer? Did you show any effort? Or maybe you, you started, but you didn't really finish. You had some effort. Or maybe you can actually say to yourself, you had great effort. I think I could do one more thing even better. What's my next step in growth? Because continuous effort is the key to unlocking potential. But keep in mind, it's not just their effort. It's also the support we give them and the language, language we use when we speak to them. Albert Einstein once said, it's not that I'm smart, it's that I stay with the problems longer. It's that he doesn't give up. So you want to create, again, some of the stress-free challenges. You can choose some games and activities. As I said, I'm happy to send some to you. Remind them I'm not grading you. I want you to take risks. And ask them to think about the strategies that they're using to come up with new approaches and to not give up. Maybe you're going to put them in teams so that they can learn from each other about what strategies you know the other kids are using. So if you look at this, one of these graphs, it, one of these pictures is something you know well, and one of these is something that you're learning. Which one do you think is which? Well, I hope you know after today that the one that, you're, that you know well is the one on the right. That's where we see all those neurons firing. But if it's something on the left, that just means you have more you need to do. Your brain actually can rewire itself. you got to let the kids know this so that they feel like they've got that potential. So what is your mindset? I know we have to have differentiated learning, but we've got to resist the temptation to put students in categories and expect them to stay there. So in response to 7th graders who did poorly on the first math quiz of the year, the very well-meaning parent, again, remember I said I think parents parent out of love and logic, and the very well-meaning teacher with a fixed mindset may say, oh, don't worry, not everyone can be good at math. But then again, how much is that kid going to try at math again now? Right? But with a growth mindset, that's when we're saying, you know, I know you can do better. Let's see what happened and how you can prepare differently next time. So we can think about the impact of praise, the impact of, of what we say. Children under age 7 take praise at face value. Oh, you're the best artist. But after that, they get suspicious. What do you mean I'm the best artist? I know that Sally's much better than me. 
what is it that this teacher or this parent wants from me? I feel manipulated. But then by age 12, children believe that praise from a teacher is not a sign that they did well, but rather that they lack ability, and the teacher thinks that they need extra encouragement. But then what's interesting is by the time the kids become teenagers, they believe it's the teacher's criticism, not the praise, that conveys a positive belief in the student's aptitude. So if I were going around a classroom right now to the first student, I just said, oh, yeah, that's good. And the second student, I said, yeah, you're doing fine. And the third student, I say, hey, you know what? Why don't you try it this way? Did you try using this strategy? And those first two kids figure, oh, the, that teacher gave up on me. And the third kid, they still, you know, the teacher still has confidence. She can really learn something or he can really learn something. And within the context of that, think about the, the impact of the test scores. So praise with impact, this is what I teach my parents. Notice, name, and nourish. Notice the kid doing something good. Name what you notice and the value you see and nourish them with warmth. Now, I know that these next two statements are very verbose, but I want you to see the whole impact. You don't want to just say, good job. Jared, I see you're really working hard at that math problem. I noticed you tried a few times without quitting, and that shows me you don't give up easily. Good for you. Or Sarah, I think you're really trying hard, but maybe the strategies you're using or maybe the strategies I'm teaching you aren't working. Let's see what else we can come up with. So I thank you all. I know that some of you may have some questions. Okay, I'm happy to take any questions you may have at this point. Um, if you want to get in touch with me, please feel free to get in touch. And I guess at this point, I'm going to bring, I guess, Robin back in, see if there are any questions or any comments anyone wants to share. And so our first question is a clarifying question about executive functions. So we have one participant who um, thought that executive functions could not be overcome entirely um, so that, that students might be able to compensate. So they might get a little bit better, but they might never but they wouldn't ever be able to 100% function um, at the same level as students without ADHD. So she was wondering if you could provide any thoughts on that comment. Sure, of course. And that's actually a great question in the context of we're talking about growth mindset, of course. So here's, here's my sense. Um, we don't always know until we give it our best effort to help kids improve in terms of their executive functioning. First of all, remember that executive functions develop over time um, and that kids with ADHD may be delayed, as I said, in their executive functioning skills. But there are many things that kids can do to truly develop those skills. Maybe not to level that some other people may, but it doesn't mean that they can't move forward a tremendous amount, both through their growth and through the strategies and supports that we give them. For instance, um, something very basic. If you want to talk about um, planning and organizing and planning for a long-term event, some kids, you know, some adults even are not very good at planning. But if you help them and guide them, and this is where ADHD coaching is so supportive, if you help them experiment, let's say, with different planners and different concepts about what's getting in the way of planning and how they really feel about planning and what is their sense of time, you know, time is, is developmental in itself. Young kids can maybe feel a day or two, whereas older kids may be a week, 
and much older people, maybe a month, okay, or whatever else it is. So if we start to meet them where they are and we give them the skills and the strategies, then they may learn to become much better at doing this planning, at breaking it down in intervals that they can feel and getting the support at the points where they really need it. Okay, so I would say a combination that, yes, let's have a growth mindset that they really can improve on their executive function skills and maybe improving means finding the right supports and strategies and modifications. What about a question specifically related to a teen? So a teen who's been over well so long that they've given up completely. Um, so how do you help them? Right. Okay. Well, that's a very broad question. They've given up completely. The first thing I'd want to do is given up completely at what? Now, let's say we're going to say, you know, we're going to go really drastic here. We're going to say they've just given up on school. Okay. They've just given up on school altogether. In this very extreme case, I may say, okay, well, let's find something that you are interested in, something that maybe you really want to learn and break it down and kind of peer pull back a lot of the other um, expectations and pressures and find that one thing that maybe they truly are interested in and help them, you know, meet them where they are and help them succeed a little bit more in that. Let's say, you know, what they really are into is, I don't know, learning about dinosaurs, okay? Then we may bombard them with a whole bunch of books about dinosaurs. Maybe we're going to help them build something about dinosaurs or um, take them to the museum, all sorts of things. And while we're doing this, we're going we're gonna to kind of start off by saying, well, let's see what you already know, right? You know those know, want to know, learn charts? We'll see, what do you already know about dinosaurs? And then as we go through and we talk to them about it, we'll say, hey, did you know that before? And they'll say, no, I didn't. Oh, wow, you just learned that. How do you know that now? and help them get in touch with how they're learning and help them really, again, see that brain and how they really, what happened when they now learn this fact and have them become maybe even the teacher to you so that they're starting to build confidence in that they can learn. And that's where we need to go. Because sometimes at this point, you're right. Some of these kids are so shut down. Slight follow up to that. But specifically, how do you reduce stress when a kid has a negative attitude towards school? Uh, reducing stress is such a big issue. Well, can we talk about reducing stress in general and then we'll, then we'll get to that kid? Again, remember I said we've got to bring back social-emotional learning to the classroom? As I travel, I'm seeing more and more schools are starting to do this a little bit. And it's called, let's do some yoga let's do some mindfulness, let's do some meditation. And before you think, oh my God, I don't have time for that, I'm talking, and again, email me, I'll give you some nice, easy exercises. These are things that could be two minutes. But if you have that ritual of doing, let's say, some breathing exercises at the beginning of the class, or some nice, gentle yoga movements where you're just standing up, it could be just standing yoga, or standing breathing, or closing their eyes and doing a little bit of of relaxation, mindfulness, what you'll find is that these kids will start to crave it. In fact, I had a teacher who I worked with and she said that one day she didn't do it. You know, she used to start off the class with two minutes of mindfulness and she didn't do it that day because she just had so much on her mind that she wanted to get going. 
And she said the kids were really off. And then at one point during the day, one of the kids said, we didn't do our mindfulness. And they all sort of realized how much they missed it. So these little things can make a huge difference. Now for the kid that in particular is really having a hard time, I'm going to go even deeper with that. I'm going to help that kid realize. And again, some of them are going to be like, oh, I'm not into this mindfulness stuff and everything else. Sneak it in there. There's lots of different activities you could do just to help them breathe and calm down and, and help them imagine that brain. So I want you all looking at your fist and the brain I said develops from the back of the brain to the front of the brain. So pretend that your thumb is the front of the brain. When they're all stressed out, what's happening is the back of the brain, that's where all the blood is getting stuck and it's not getting to that front part where the thumb is. And so they're shut down. So help them see that and ask them, hey, you know what? Is the blood getting to the front part of your brain? Are you able to think and use those executive functions? Hang up that chart of the executive functions, right? So the kids can see it and get in touch with it. Next. What about specifically, we have a participant who's, who's saying that kids with ADHD are also feel irritated when there's a change in scheduling a routine. So any suggestions on how to work through those issues? Yes. Um, one suggestion is whenever possible, and I realize it's not always possible, we've got to be proactive. We've got to know, you know, this is obviously for this person who wrote this, a pattern of behavior with a kid. So if I know it's a pattern of behavior, I'm not going to wait and let them know about a change. I'm going to let them know really early on. But if I can't, one thing I can do is have a conversation with this kid and say, hey, you know what? I know that sometimes you get frustrated when we have to change the schedule at the last minute. And I totally get that. Will you brainstorm with me on what we can do to help you be as prepared as you can be about that change? The other thing to think about is that some of this is related to transition, that the kid's actually having a hard time transitioning out of what he's doing and what, let's say, he anticipated he was going to be doing. So now it's all changing. So what I want you to imagine is that the transition actually is three parts. To transition, you have to stop an activity. Then you have to move cognitively or physically to that next activity. So I want you to imagine kind of a bridge going across a big water. And then you start the activity. So for the kid that's having a really hard time when things aren't exactly as they think they're going to be, we have to help them realize, okay, well, so how can we stop? How can we shift gears? What is our concern about going there? What is our concern about not going where you were going to go? Because maybe we can resolve this concern with a few quick, quick, you know, plans or answers or, you know, whatever we can do to help them deal with it. What about how can teachers help their students really believe them when they tell them that the learning's happening, that even though they're struggling, the learning is still happening? Well, um, first of all, remember I said the three parts of praise? Focus on their effort. You can focus on their effort and show them what they're doing and let them know, you know, you can give them role models like, uh, who is it, Thomas Edison that says, I haven't failed, I've just found 10,000 ways that won't work. Give them a lot of role models of people that, you know, were maybe the late bloomers or maybe, you know, maybe really did struggle early on and that they do get it so that 
as they're doing it, maybe, maybe the question is just becoming more clear for them. Maybe they're seeing that their strategy isn't working. So you can check off, okay, we tried that strategy. That one's not working. Let's see what other strategy we're going to try. So let them always feel like there is potential for another way to look at it. So kind of un, a little unrelated, but again, with thinking about that perseverance and frustration, what about helping students with organization of their school papers, books, and folders? What, you want some strategies for that? Is that what you're asking? I guess so. I think how, you know, how maybe not to be frustrated if it's coming up again and again, um, if that's something that they're trying to work on, um, if they're trying to work on organization skills. Okay. I'm not sure I'm completely clear, but I'll, I'll kind of go with where I think you are. Okay. So if a kid is having a hard time organizing and maybe the teacher not getting frustrated, or we talk about the kid not getting frustrated, so one thing may be talking about, you know, what are some different ways to organize? Um, what benefit is there from organizing? Um, in terms of organization techniques, color coding is a great thing to do. One thing I really like is I have these folders. They're 10 pocket folders and they're really, really sturdy. And in each pocket, um, you say, you know, the first pocket may be math, the second pocket may be science or social studies. So that this kid just has to bring that one big folder to every class, you know, along with maybe their notebook that they're taking their notes in. But don't worry about putting the, the, the notes that they have in the binder at that moment or maybe the handouts from the teacher. Just put it in that folder. And then at the end of the day, or at least once a week, take everything out of that section that says math and then neatly put it in that math binder or the science binder, et cetera, et cetera. It's hard for me to answer that because I don't know what grades we're talking about or, or where the struggle is. Right. Okay. Well, thank you. And we'll see if we get any additional um information from that question. Are there, do you know of any good websites with games that help with executive functioning? Uh, in terms of websites, um, I don't know if I'm thinking of any websites right now, but I'm going to give you a different thing that can help with executive functioning, and that is interaction. So playing Legos and building and planning about the, the Legos or the, remember the Lincoln Logs things like that. Um, cooking, planning out a meal and measuring and knowing how, how far in advance you have to start the cooking can help. Um, I always tell parents, don't ever pack your kid's suitcase. It's a great exercise. You know, we're going away for four days. What are we going to need? How do we know what we're going to need? Let's look at what the weather is. Let's think about the activities we're going to do. Let's write down all the things we may need. Let's put everything out on the bed and then see what kind of suitcase we need. Uh-oh, the suitcase is too small. How can we prioritize and see what we, we don't need to take with us? So rather than thinking about websites, I'm really thinking about more interactive because it's in that role model, modeling. It's in that conversation. It's in asking those powerful questions and wondering why out loud that we're really helping kids develop the executive function skills. Great, thank you. For students who are both gifted and have ADHD, 
Are there any specific considerations from your presentation today that maybe apply more to them or other suggestions that would be in addition? So I think you're talking about something that sometimes is referred to as twice exceptional. In fact, there's a website, I think it's called 2E or twice exceptional. Um, I think that this applies tremendously because what happens is kids that are, are gifted, very often they're not challenged. So they are, they're easily getting those hundreds. And then when they reach their wall where they actually do have a challenge, they're not prepared to meet that challenge. So we have to work especially hard to give them opportunities where they're not going to succeed. And again, with that, with that support. So this applies tremendously to them because we have to sometimes, believe it or not, work harder to help them get frustrated. Great, thank you. Um, what about, what are your thoughts on can building perseverance in sports and athletic events translate to studying and other com complex abstract problem solving? Absolutely, I'll give you an example from my own life. Um, when I was in my late 40s, I was never much of an athlete and I decided for a variety of reasons that I was going to ride a 100 mile bike ride. Um, I had never ridden more than four miles in my life, but I had joined something called Team in Training, where we raise money for the Leukemia Lymphoma Society, and I committed to do a 100-mile bike ride in, um, at the time, actually, it was March, and I committed to do a 100-mile bike ride in May. And when I showed up that first day, I had never ridden more than four miles, as I said, and they were already up to 35 miles. And I thought, well, I can't do that. Maybe I'll do 10 miles. That would be a great accomplishment. But the coach said to me, don't worry. You just stay with me. We'll get through it. And she stayed with me the whole day. And she just kept saying, okay, just look at the next tree. Just look at the next pole. And she gave me different strategies to try in terms of my pedaling and my posture and everything else. And at the end of the day, I was able to do that 35 miles. Well, the next day, of course, I couldn't walk. But the next week, now we're up to 40 miles. And I started to realize, wow. If I did 35, I can do 40, and the next week 45 and 50, et cetera, et cetera, to the point where I actually did my 100-mile bike ride. But what that experience gave me truly, I'm going to say, impacted my whole life. It was actually um, about 10 years ago at this point, and I still think back to that experience when I have a big academic challenge, a learning challenge, or you know, maybe I'm starting to write a new a workshop or program or when I was writing my book and it felt over, you know, this whole daunting thing, I just brought myself back to that and I said, wait a minute, break this down. I started in one place, I couldn't do, but I, I listened to the support of others and I got my strategies and I got out there and I tried, I can do this. And it really improved my belief in myself, my perseverance. So I think sports is a wonderful way. That's why I said, look at Dancing with the Stars. Look at, look at what they do. It's amazing. So probably two more questions. One, this first one I'm going to go is a, is a little off topic of K through 12, but any of these suggestions, can they be applied to college age students? I think it all applies to every age, honestly. I mean, I was certainly past college age when I did my bike ride, and that was certainly, you know, changing my fixed mindset. It's, it's helping kids, and this again is where I'm going to recommend, and I'm happy to put you in touch with the right coaches, um, 
this is where I really recommend the ADHD coaching for the college kids because it's about helping them see what their mindset already is so we can help them work on their mindset. We want to get them in touch with where do they have a fixed mindset? What is the belief that they already hold about themselves? And, and one more word I'm going to throw in there that I, that I should have thrown in earlier is that very powerful word of yet, Y-E-T, yet. I don't know how to do it yet. So last question, um, specific issue of students who are flying through tests especially, um, just selecting answers, not really taking the time to slow down and take and take their time. So any suggestions other than using praise? Yes, absolutely. A few suggestions. First of all, if you have a kid who's consistently, consistently going too fast, I may want to break down that test and let's say the test has 10 problems. I may only want to give them two at a time. I also want to put some kind of a timer in front of them, not as a stressor. I'm going to talk to them about this before the test so that they can pace themselves. So that if they see that after five minutes, they've already done four questions where my expectation is they should spend two minutes on, you know, per section, then they know they're going too fast. So helping them slow themselves down. You know, a lot of the reasons kids go too fast is because they actually don't have a sense of time. So they don't realize that they're going too fast. They just think they're going to run out of time. So that's the other thing to consider. Having them really slow down and, and not give them the opportunity to go ahead of themselves. Okay, great. Thank you, Cindy. Well, we are about finished with our presentation today. So thank you so much for your insights and suggestions. And thank you to Cindy and to all of you for joining us. This concludes our webcast. Think twice before you reach for that over-the-counter allergy medication. It may interact with your ADHD medication. Talk with your doctor before starting any new medication, whether it's over-the-counter or prescription. For more information about ADHD, visit helpforadhd.org. That's H-E-L-P, the number four, ADHD.org.